was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Happy holidays, everyone, and I have a very special holiday treat for you today, my interview with Broadway legend Faith Prince. Faith Prince is a four-time Tony nominee for her performances in A Catered Affair, Bells Are Ringing, Guys and Dolls, and Jerome Robbins Broadway, and her other other Broadway credits include Disaster, Annie, The Little Mermaid, Noises Off, The King and I, James Joyce's The Dead, What's Wrong with This Picture, and Nick and Nora. Her off-Broadway credits include A Man of No Importance, Bad Habits, Falsetto Land, and Little Shop of Horrors, and she also starred on screen in Dave, Drop Dead Diva, Emily in Paris, Monarch, and Spin City. And now, without further ado, here's Faith Prince. I would love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? I went to a production of Peter Pan at a little place in Lynchburg called um, the Lynchburg Fine Arts Center. And they even flew the Peter Pan. I'm not sure how they did it in that little community theater. But I was mesmerized. And... I always liked being in front of people. Um, I used to get up at church for, like, the, um, you know, dinners and do the welcome sort of poem and things like that. And we put on little, um, you know, like at Christmas time, I was in the manger scene as one of the angels or something like that. I just, I just love the feeling that you felt sort of having people be affected by what you did. Yeah. And when I saw that production, I was like, oh, this, this looks like really fun. So um, I got involved. Um, I actually went with my friend Carol Camo, the audition of King and I in the fifth grade. Before that, I was in a talent show uh, in the first grade, and I kind of won second prize. It was one to seventh grades. And I did a poem about Raggedy Ann. And... Um, so I had a little experience with that, but then Carol Camo down the street invited me to go to her audition for King and I, for the children. And of course, you know, it was, you know, all white children. I mean, so they're going to have to put like tan makeup on themselves oh. and stuff like that. But I just went for moral support and the people talked me into going in to audition. And I said, well, I don't, I don't really have anything prepared. And they said, don't you know anything? And, and I said, oh. Well, I suppose I could do happy birthday, but I did happy birthday with like lots of feeling and I made it very dramatic. And I think I even took my arms in birthday. I mean, I just, I really went for it and just put all the emotions into it. If you can do that with happy birthday. And anyways, I got the role as one of the children and Carol Camo did not. And she didn't speak to me for two weeks. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
and that was the beginning. I mean, I knew it was going to be, you know, long and arduous, especially being school. And my mother, you know, would put me in the bathtub and like wash off all the, the, it was, it was called something. Now I can't remember what it was. I'll have to ask her what it was. It was a specific name, but it was terrible, like sand makeup that just made your, your tub kind of look black and, you know, uh, or dark, you know, with dark sandy stuff and um i just remember her going oh my god i'll be glad when this is over because i can <laughs> clean my bathtub really good you know and it was just i don't know i loved the i loved being a part of something and being and people were friendly and the adults were great to the kids and it was fun being on stage and just being a part of something and i remember the smell in the theater thinking oh my god i belong here and were your parents supportive of your interest in doing it as a career? You know, they never said anything. Uh, I, I was so headstrong, and I had such a strong point of view at that age. I, I don't I don't think they had any choice. They were just like, uh, they're always surprised by me. You know, like, oh, 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 oh is, this, is this what we're doing? Yes, this is what we're doing. Oh, okay, all right, you know. Um, and they were supportive in that they never tried to stop me. They never said anything like, well, what are you really going to do? They never said anything like that. Um, but I also think I just figured out, and I, I had mentors. You know, I had Carl Harris at the high school, and we, we did high school shows that were very upscale, oh. and everybody wanted to be a part of, you know, by the time... We were in seventh and eighth grade. We were aware that the high school did these shows. So you were primed by the time you got to E.C. Glass High School that this is something you wanted to be a part of. And so he was my mentor, and I think he talked to my parents and just said, you know, I think Faith has something here that's really special. I think she might go to school for it. Uh So he's the one that knew about Cincinnati Conservatory. And at that time, they were only like maybe... I don't know, five or six schools that offered a BFA in musical theater. And that was one of them. Okay. And what was your experience like going to school there? Um, well, it was very challenging. Um, I, especially the first year, I was really scared to death most of the time. I, I really can't believe I made it through. Um, but I would cry myself to sleep, uh, especially in the first semester, and just say, you know, you're not allowed to go home. You're here to learn. And if you have to learn by failing, then that's how you learn, you know. And I just was determined because I'd had a couple of other friends from high school already go home from college. And I just went, oh, no, that's just not the choice for me. And I didn't really have a backup. Like, I didn't apply to any other school. I don't know what would have happened had I not got into Cincinnati, you know. Um, I mean, I was kind of stupid that way. But, um you know, it worked out, and I, I always describe myself, uh, I, I did a, a commencement speech, because they gave me an honorary doctorate at the University of Cincinnati, which Cincinnati Conservatory is a part of, but separate, you know, and I had to speak to the students, and I always said I described myself like in the tortoise and the hare, I'm definitely the tortoise, I'm slow, but steady. Oh, yeah, and so... How did um, moving to New York happen for you? And did you always know that you wanted to move there? And- Not 
really, that sort of transpired while I was at Cincinnati. Because the more I got into it, and the more I put myself on the line, and the more I was starting to get somewhere, I thought, well, you know, I could tell by listening to the other students, and, and we had had some students before us. Some of them went. Not all of them did. It wasn't a guarantee. But our class was pretty motivated. So I think we were all going to kind of move there together, most of us. And uh, I would go there during spring break and, you know, sort of sniff it out and see shows and things like that. And I had already start, started to audition in the summers for summer stock and places like Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera and, you know, things like that. And I, I ended up doing summer stock at Wagamole Playhouse. And a lot of the kids from uh, Northwestern University would go there, too. So as I met people, I, I just got the sense that that was the next step, that people yeah. should go to New York and start, you know, continue training, but um, really, uh, you know, start auditioning and, and, and start your career. Yeah. So I got my equity card um, through a, a choreographer, at Wagonwell Playhouse, um, she had told me about a job that she was choreographing in Washington, D.C., and it was a review. It was three women, three men, and she thought I might be right for one of the parts, and the one that was open was like the second soprano. So my my mom came and uh, flew into Warsaw, and I had my old Cutlass Oldsmobile, and we drove all night the audition and I auditioned and I did not get that part but I was leaving to pack up to drive down to Lynchburg which wasn't very far from Washington I think it was like three hours or something and I got a phone call and the, the alto comedian had fallen out and so they said they wanted to cast me as that person so I actually got in and then did my three months and got my equity card and then I moved to New York and I believe you did uh, some summer stock at the Pittsburgh CLO. And was that before New York or after? Or? No, that was after, after New York. In fact, a lot of my colleagues got in right away in the summer program. I, I really wasn't, and I, I mean to say this lovingly about myself, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't strong enough as a dancer, singer, um, to be in the chorus. I mean, you really had to have some amazing chops and really have a lot of dance. And, and that wasn't my forte. I was a character actress and I was funny. Um, I was a good actress. I thought I was, that, that, that I would have put above the singing and the dancing. And that I just picked up as I went along because I didn't really have a history of dancing when I was a young person. I had taken piano, but not dancing. So, so I went to Pittsburgh later as, you know, in, in the roles of, like, I think I played the Ugly Stepsister in Cinderella. I played Gloria Upsom in Mame. You know, I could always get the, the, the kind of quirky, um, you know, uh, funny part. Yeah. And what did you sort of learn from some of the professionals who you worked with there? Like, I know Dixie Carter was in Mame with you and... Yes, she was. Um, you know, I was always, and I've been this my whole life. I'm a, I'm an observer, which which I think helps to make a good actor, 
because I could read the room. I, I was absorbing everything around me. When I wasn't working myself, I was watching other people to see how they handled things, how they handled their nerves, how they were as a lead, how they were as a human, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, I think each time I had a job, you know, I'd meet people or get to know them or watch them. And I, I think that was the building blocks. And it took me 10 years to get my first Broadway show. And, you know, they always laugh at me on the Playbill Cruise because it's like, yeah, it took face prints 10 years. But, you know, I was working all that time, but it just didn't land for me. And and I kind of preferred it that way. By the time I got to Jerome Robbins Broadway, which was my first show, I was ready. I was ready yeah. for that experience. You know, I didn't feel like a fish out of water or, or it didn't feel out of my league. I was chomping at the bit by that time. And at this point early in your career, did you have an audition song that you used a lot or anything like that? Oh, yeah, I did. Let's see. Oh, I had a couple of them. I used to do Is It a Crime from Bells Are Ringing. Oh. That was a big one. Um, and then I would turn around and maybe do something like Too Long at the Fair, which was kind of a ballad and a very kind of darker song. I always picked contrasting songs. And I really, um, I, I played my audition, like I thought a lot about the material that I was going to audition, what I wanted to show them. Um, I wanted to show them I was buried, that I had sort of pathos and humor. Um, I would sort of go in and sort of hit it on the nose with the humor card. And then I might turn around and do something really depthful and slow and, you know, a little darker. And that, you know, and I've heard, like, Dee Dee Wong talk about that and, and Alice Ripley, you know. Our auditions became our sort of mini cabaret shows, you know. Yeah. You could really show your point of view. And, and that's kind of what Cincinnati taught me. It's not, just, it's not so much the song you choose, it's what the song means to you. What is your point of view in the song? Because that's when they can see who you really are. Yeah. So as I went along with that, you know, I used to, like, have about eight songs in my book. And, you know, if I got something like Grease, where I needed a 50s number, I'd just turn in something from James at Sea and have the pianist sort of, you know, with my umbrella, it's here somewhere. I need that style of la, 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 la. Keep me dry, you know, and I because I knew the song and I would just change it to make it like 50s. I did stuff like that all the time. Oh, yes. And I'd love to ask about um, an early show you did off Broadway, which was Little Shop of Horrors you carried to. Yes. Yes. Um, I was, let's see, my first show was Scrambled Feet at the um, um, uh, Little. Oh, not the oh, I can't believe I'm not remembering it. It's down in the village, the village gate. And um, I I went to see my friend Jimmy in it, and I raised my hand because they were talking to some group afterwards. My mom went with me, and she goes, you'd be good in the show. And I was like, I wasn't even thinking of that. So by the time we were waiting for Jimmy to come out, they had a group they had to talk back with. And I raised my hand. They go, they go yeah, do you have a question? I said, yeah do you need another girl? And they said, well, do you play the piano? And I said, yes. And I did. He said, do you sing? I said, of course. 
they said, well, we're looking for somebody for the for the production in Boston at the Charles Playhouse. Would you would you like to audition? And I was like, oh, boy, would I? Of course, my friend Jimmy's like, you know, under the piano by the time. He can't <laughs> believe I've just been so ballsy. But I did it nicely. And they auditioned me, and I got the part. And that's how I got an agent. So um, Scrambled Feet was one of the shows. I actually came back to New York with it, and then I went out to L.A. and opened it. So I got to know the writers because they were in it and the guys in it. So there was this job that came up for IBM. It was an industrial. And industrials were when, like, you know, big companies would hire you to entertain oh. once a year and they'd have all their people fly to different places like Hawaii or Bermuda or Florida. And you would you would perform the same show in all these different places. And it was a really good-paying job. I mean, I was so excited to have it. But then I got this audition for a little shop, and it was at the WPA, and I thought, oh, God, this is so right for me. So, um, you know, it was down to, like, I don't know, three of us, and then they called me and said, you got it. You know, Howard wants you to be Audrey. And I was like, oh, my God. So then I thought, oh, I'll just get out of this other job. Well, I had signed a contract, and I had to go into the guy at IBM in the casting, and he said, you know, you signed a contract. I'm going to hold you to it. So I didn't get to do it. And then Ellen Green got it. And the West is sort of history, but I, I did go, end up going back into the show. But my theory is probably if I had been known first and foremost for Audrey and Little Shop, I wouldn't have done um, Adelaide in Dogs and Dolls because they're, they're kind of similar roles. Oh, and how did you sort of bring your own unique spin to that role that Ellen Green had, of course, originated in? Well, I would say the biggest difference, and I mean, not that I had a fight with Howard Ashman, but you realize, I mean, Ellen Green had kind of done the show for a while when I when I came back into it. And he was kind of putting me in the show, and he kept saying, you know, I need you to be more Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. And I said, okay, but I'm thinking I'm more Judy Holiday, you know. And the difference is Marilyn was not a dumb person, but she had an airiness to her, and she she played dumb. And Judy Holiday, you thought there was sort of a, like a dumbness about her, but she was dumb like a fox. It was very sort of calculated. Yeah. And that was my way in more than the Marilyn thing. But it worked, you know. But I think after a while, you know, since Ellen had done the role, he just wanted me to go that way and do that way. But I tend to do things my own way. Yeah. And so another show you did uh, off-Broadway before Jerome Robbins' Broadway was uh, something called Groucho Life in Review with uh, Arthur Marks, who was Groucho Marx's son. And what was that like to be working with him on that show about his father? Well, he didn't... You're not going to like this. <laughs> I, I just always got the feeling that the Marxists didn't think a lot of women. And, and the reason I say that is because he just kept saying, you know, she needs to just be different people so that the, the guys can get their laugh line. And I, that really upset me. So I just said, oh, they'll get their laugh line. But I started to hone these characters and really dig in. And at one point I thought, oh, my God, do I really want to do this? You know, it was playing nine different women. But that, that turned out to be a really good job for me to do, even though it was very difficult. Um, uh, I mean, Frank and... and um, Oh, I can't even think the man's name who played Chico. But Frank Ferranti is still doing Groucho. 
to this day. But um, he was a kid then, you know, and they had been doing on the road, and they, they would give me, like, index cards. And they'd say, well, we need you to do this and this and this. And I said, oh, well, I only take notes from the um, director or the stage manager, so you need to talk to them. And um, I had some different ideas for the woman, and I, I wanted to be more complex and have really fill it out and when Arthur came to see me opening night, he went, I cannot believe what you did with this, this role. He said, it was it was unbelievable, like, the different women you became. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, it just, it takes me a while. Sometimes people don't think I'm, like, they, they don't know what I'm doing. And, and I'm, what I'm doing is, it, it's the work. I'm processing, you know. Yeah. And I'm gathering information. And I'm, like, watching everything. And then I start to put it together. But, again, I'm the turtle, right? So I'm I'm slow and steady. It's sort of a theme in my life. And I think he couldn't believe, because he didn't direct it, you know. Um, The man's name. I can't remember. But um, he just said, you know, believe me, this girl will fill it out, you know, because he and I had worked together before. And... um, um, yeah, you couldn't believe the difference. So I just stayed with it, and I kept working at it. And it turned out to be a really kind of a turning point for me because I was really finding my sort of acting chops in different ways and not just, you know, as a comedian but as, um, you know, as a woman and um, and and really depthful characters, you know, because um, I played all three of the wives. I played some reporters. I played Margaret Dumont. You know, um, it was an interesting challenge. Yeah. And as you were auditioning more and more, how did you find what you thought was sort of your niche in terms of the roles you did go up for and that's that doing? Well, honestly, that's where the casting people come in, you know, because you start to form relationships with casting people because they want you to come through for them because it makes them look good, right? It makes their job easier. And uh, they started to sort of put together, like, ideas of what I could do. And um, they would see me do different things. And because I was sort of going in with, I was excited about my auditions for them because I thought, oh, where they see this, you know. And I would take risks. I would take a lot of risks. And, um, and by risk, I mean I do one song but as another character, which is how I got Adelaide. You know, they didn't really want us to do the lament. So I went in and did something wonderful, which is Lady Tiang's song from uh-huh. King and I as Miss Adelaide. Uh-huh. And, you know, and you could see it just took their heads off. And uh-huh. I thought, boy, this is a real risk, but a risk I was willing to take because I wanted them to see the depth of how I saw this character. And I would do things like that all the time. And I would, I would think, Hmm. What do I want to go in and do this as? You know, yeah. and um, and it's the things I teach my students now. You know, uh, like I had one student who who you know was trying to think of a twist or a flip, and she did. There were bells on the hill. You know, yeah. But I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them ringing till there was you, and she looked at the pianist, and it was so funny that she was so committed, but it was all about the pianist. You know, and. So when you do things like that, you take your intelligence in the room with you. And it, it makes them do two things. They realize you really think out of the box, and you might be a fun person to, like, direct and play with. And it also brings your intelligence into the room because you've really worked on things, you've thought about it, you came in from a different angle. Yeah. And it makes them remember you. 
so it was the casting people that, you know, I started like doing my little shows for them and, you know, people like Jay Bender and, um, um, I'm trying to think who the casting people were at that time. Um, um, Tara Rubin was later, uh, Stuart Howard, um, oh, Vinny Liff, you know, people like that. And they see you over and over and over. You'd bring something in. You'd be interesting. They go, oh, we can always count on Faith to be, you know, we, we like whatever she brings in, it'll be, we won't be bored. So that's how I started sort of putting my stamp on things and sort of getting my own point of view and um, and through that. And then people, you know, sometimes they just call me directly and say, hey, I've got this part for you. You'd be great in this. You know, would you want to do it? Yeah. But, so you kind of, it just starts to build, right? But that's why you have to get there to start networking and putting the pieces together. You know, it just starts, but you've got to start it. And... I'd love to ask about um, your Broadway debut and Jerome Robbins' Broadway, which you were mentioning. And what was it like to be rehearsing with Jerome Robbins, who is, of course, such a great... Well, I'm sure you've read about the classic story. I really stood up to him at one point. And, um, you know, and it was pretty boldy. But, you know, he kind of needed the pushback. And um, he was snapping his fingers one day about the pace and everything. And I wanted to take this pause. And he goes, no, no, it doesn't need to pause. And I go, yes, it does. Sure. because um, I said, but you wouldn't know that because we, you know, we've been in we we've been in a rehearsal room for five months. We've not been in front of an audience, but I think it would be funny. And he got all flustered, you know, and gave a couple more notes, and then he like gave break and ice. <laughs> and Robert LaFosse went after me to give a great dancer, and he goes, "Tell him he doesn't articulate." Tell him, I said, "I'm not telling him a fucking thing." <laughs> but how much freedom were you given in terms of recreating these? None. Oh. You know, very, I mean, you could come up with things, but he had to sort of approve it. He, I've never been with, uh, maybe maybe Jerry Zach might be the second, um, in terms of really having their hands on. He would come into the theater, and I'm not kidding you, I have a letter from him that I've kept. There must have been 65 notes, and I was like, one of 65 people. He was very detailed. And how were the sort of parts and understudying parts assigned? Was that from the beginning or did that sort of develop during rehearsal? Or That's a good question. I think if he saw people worked, he would, you know, call people up and he'd say, why don't you cover this, you cover this, you cover this, you know. 
Because, I mean, you know, I mean, you've auditioned 65 people, but you don't know exactly what they can and can't do, you know. So it was over the the course of five months, you know, that people began to solidify um, in terms of covers, first covers or second covers or things like that. You know, it was run like a ballet company. And how did your, because you were mentioning earlier about your sort of having less dance experience, and how did that sort of factor in here? Well, he, I was, I was concerned about it, but he had eight of us who were just character actors, and he had this one number that was quite complex, and it was the soft shoe. In one, it was me and Jason Alexander, and as I was learning it, I didn't realize that in the ballet world, your covers, whoever he picks at that moment, learns it at the same time you do. Usually in Broadway, you learn it, you're working on it, and they sit out in the house and, you know, and they're watching you and they kind of learn it on the side and then they start having rehearsals, right? Well, in a ballet company, everybody learns it at the same time. And I didn't understand that because I, of course, I've never been in a ballet company. And so I asked to speak Mr. Robbins, you know, and I, I thought they were going to, like, send me into the office, the administrative office, to, to sort of speak with him. But they had one whole, like, rehearsal room that was sort of like walking into the doors of Oz, you know. And I started to feel for my leg shake, like, well, maybe I should be asking this, but I did anyway. And he was on a stool in this big rehearsal room at 890 Broadway, which is the famous studios that we, that's no longer there, but that we rehearsed at, and we had, I don't know, the third and fourth floor, I think, there were so many of us, and so they had this one big room, and it was just him in the middle on a stool, and I walked in, and, and he goes, you had a you had a question? And I was like, I am the great Oz, you know, and I said, yes, sir, I had a question. I said, so um, these, these roles that I think I've gotten, like Ma and Bessie Tura and you know, doing the slow drag and the on the town number. Do I mean, do I actually have those roles now or am I still auditioning? And he goes to me, he goes, Fake, you have those roles. You know, those are in your contract. And I said, Okay, I said, because I just wanted to check because I have these two people in rehearsal behind the white line and I said, Perhaps you've not seen them but they're very good. <laughs> <laughs> That say, do you think vaudeville um, performers were trained? And I said, no. He said, right, which is why I hired you. I said, okay, see you tomorrow. And in general, um, how long do you like to sort of stay in a show? And do you think there's a certain length that where it becomes too long? Or I think it's, you know, it's it's for everybody individually to to weigh. For me, it's like I never want to feel like I'm not present, you know. And I think I think Guys and Dolls was the longest I ever did a show, and that was about a year and a half. But you know, I just can feel when I'm like not phoning it in. I would never phone it in. But if I'm even like starting to think that way, you know what I mean? Like your mind just goes other places. You can just tell. But some people they like. You know, like, look at the people that were in fans of the opera for years and years and years and years and years. I, I wouldn't be one of those people. But some people can. You know, they like the, 
the routine. They like the sameness of the job. Um, some people are really into that. I was into what's next. Yeah. And um, next after Jerome Robbins Broadway was uh, Falsetto Land off Broadway. And what was it like to sort of step into this role in the sequel to Falsettos? Oh, sorry, to uh, March of the Falsettos and have it be most of the same cast? But Well, um, you know, again, it's like, I know I'm a Leo by nature. I'm, you know, that's my, my sign. And most people think Leos are very um, strong and sort of take their territory. But the truth is, I only do that when um, when I have to. And when I walked into that situation, those guys had been had a relationship with Bill Finn and James Lapine for years. And they kind of were like family, you know, Michael yeah. Rupert and Stephen Bogardus and Chip Ryan. And, um, and they kind of bickered like family, too. You know, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I just kind of followed their lead, and Chip Ryan turned to me one day, and he goes, hey, how come you're not asking for something or fighting or this and that? And I went, well, um, I don't think I really need to. I think you guys have covered it, so I'm good. You know, and that's kind of the way it went. I just followed suit because they had laid the ground, and I was just trying to sort of slide in. The way you do, like, when you're a guest star on a TV series or something, you know, and you go, okay, this is the tone. These people are working together. You kind of read the room and you go, okay, I can match that. It's like playing duet piano, you know? You just kind of, okay, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. These are the dynamics. Okay, go, you know? And so if I get a sense of that, it's strong and it seems good and everybody's, you know, that's what they're doing, I have no problem sort of fitting in. And I can usually find my way and be comfortable. And even when I replace, um, you know, I start off given everything that the other person's doing, and then I start to find my own little way, and I change it, but only with the permission of the of the director, you know. And but I, I don't want to make anybody nervous. They're used to one thing, and I, I try to go in that. But if but if I'm finding it's just not working for me, then I'll say, do you mind if we try this or whatever? So I start to just alter it slightly and gently. And I don't know. It usually works out. Yeah. And, and what do you think made that show so successful? Oh, I just think, well, people knew these characters. A lot of people did. Um, I think it was just such a representation of, of things that people were dealing with now that AIDS was in our lives and, um, you know, homosexuality was sort of out in the world and it was changing how we look at families, how we look at relationships, how we're dealing with death, how we're dealing with um, something coming into the world that we didn't know very much about, certainly at first. And to not let the fear get in the way of you loving the person and being there for the person. And, you know, it just, it allowed a lot of people to go, oh, you know, I, I don't have to go this way or I don't have to be as fearful or, you know, this is my family. It's a complicated family, but it's still my family. And yeah. um, I think just the humanity of it, you know, it was just... Uh, so powerful, and I, I really think it felt like a temple for people to be able to grieve and feel lost. 
and yeah. and and come together and I mean people would just sob. I can think about it right now and just they would just stop, stop. Like the lights would go up, the show was over and people would just still be sitting in their seats. And so, um, after uh, Falsetto Land, you did another show with someone like uh, Jerome Robbins, who was sort of a famously difficult uh, theater personality, which was Arthur Lawrence with Nick and Nora. And oh, so, yeah, yeah. What was that like to collaborate with him? Then? Well, tricky, you know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I didn't say this, but I know this. You know, people call him the meanest man in show business, and he could be brutal. And he, he was brutal to me. I mean, he laid me out one day, and this was at the workshop. I was just sort of asking questions, and boy, he, you know, I didn't realize we were sort of there to do a backers audition and get money. They were still trying to get money for the show. And I thought we were just there to sort of work on the piece, and my, my um, you know, um, part was complicated, and, um, you know, I, I just sort of kept asking questions because I was, again, see, I process and, you know, this is how I sort of gather my information. And boy, he had had it one day. He just oh. asked one too many questions and he was like, what are you doing? Nobody else is like, you know, asking me so many questions, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, ooh, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, I had I'd grown up with a very stern father who I had to stand up to, you know, a lot in my life. And I, so I do this thing where I just sort of separate and I go to the ceiling and I go, well, wow, he's really pissed, you know, and I just don't have any emotion at all. I just go, hmm, that's interesting. And I start to observe it. And so I think he thought I, you know, was going to cry, but I didn't. And then he finished and then I kind of, you know, we broke and I walked out the street and that's when they still had pay phones and I called my therapist and I went, okay, so we've got work to do. Um, you know, I'm going to come to you. <laughs> We're going to work on this. And literally, I was the only one speaking to him at the end of the show. You know, um, no, nobody was speaking to him. Because he had just been brutal in the whole, um, you know, process. And uh, I just, I have what I call my screen door. I just, I can still see through it. But I just thought, I'm not asking him anything until I absolutely have to. Yeah. And, um you know, I'm just going to earn that credit back, and I'm not going to be the scapegoat because I'm, I'm, I never want that to happen again, you know. So I just figured out a way around it. And how did that show sort of change from the first workshops to getting to Broadway? Well, I, you know, it was directed more like a film, not like a musical. Yeah. And it was more cinematic. But, you know, it is a musical. And it's funny. I mean, I'm going to say something. I just think Arthur Lawrence, I, to me, it seemed like he didn't really want it to be musicalized as much, sung as much. He wanted it to be more, you know, cinematic and spoken and not let the music sort of take over. And, you know, it's tricky with a musical because it's a musical. So... Um, you know, it seemed really good in the room when we were at eight. No, we were at eight ninety for that one too. But uh, you know, people were close to us when it got into the marquee. You know, I just remember thinking to myself, "I'm going to open up and push out and sort of go larger than life." I'm still rooted in truth, but I just thought, "Hmm, 
this has a very different feel, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of the only one who did that. And Lorraine, and you know, ended up being sort of the most interesting character in the piece. And she, and she was the one that was murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so, who knew, you know, but it helped me get Adelaide and Guys and Dolls because Jerry Zach saw me in that. Oh. And so, Adelaide, of course, was your next uh, Big Broadway show. And so when you were approaching that part, how much did you sort of, or how much were you inspired by what Vivian Blaine had done, and how much did you try to sort of create your own separate from that? Well, I'm always inspired by the people, because I watch them, you know, and I think, oh, that's interesting. But then when I get my hands on the dough, you know, it's like anything. It's like a recipe. I'll go, oh, this is an interesting recipe. Oh, I think I would like to try that. And, you know, and I look at the ingredients and everything, but then I go, mm, wouldn't it be neat if I just put a little twist on that? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I just always have a way of putting myself into it. It changes slightly. But I'm always influenced by any time I'm sort of studying a role, like I did a reading of Ruth in Wonderful Town, you know, I looked at Rosalind Russell, I looked at Donna Murphy, I looked at the woman who had done it in the English uh, company, you know, and I go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I love when they did that. Oh, that's, oh, okay. So they went out that way. Oh, that's all right. You know, and I just sort of process everybody's thing. And then I get into it and I go, okay, now who's my Ruth? What is this for me? You know, I, I remember when I was first in the city and, you know, what was it like for me? How can I put my point of view on it? And then things start to change. But I always, you know, I go, oh, I'm going to use that. Or, you know, it's like, it's such a compliment, you know. <laughs> you, you think, I mean, Donna Murphy did a lot of things. And I thought, oh, those were good choices, you know. And I chose a couple and put them in for mine, you know. But then I did my own thing, too. So it's sort of a myriad of, of, of things, you know? And so Guys and Dolls was, of course, extraordinarily successful. And you've done many successful revivals in addition to a few that ran a bit of a shorter time. And do you think or do you think there's a specific art to a successful revival? Um, well, I think somebody was talking about it online from the Tonys last night because somebody said, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't think the company would win. But... To me, a successful revival is when you take something that is from another time and uh, a very good piece, but there's a way you bring it into this century, you know? And it's not that you always have to change the time period or anything. It's just the way we look at it and the filter that we look at it through. So it always helps if it has, again, like what I'm talking about, a little twist, like what I try to do with different roles, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And what was it like to play opposite the great Nathan Lane and Guys and Dolls and sort of find your chemistry and comic timing and all of that? Well, we had been in a play. I mean, I knew him throughout the years because he came to New York at about the same time. And then we were in a play together of Terrence McNally's. And it was about drinking and drugs, if I remember. And it was at the Manhattan Theater Club. And, um... Nathan was not happy in it. We were all not happy. It was very dated. Again, they take. We were trying to revive this play, and the way we looked at drugs and alcohol was so much different than when this play was done in the '70s. And so, um, I mean, we knew so much more about, you know, like the things we laugh at or could laugh at. It, it was just changed. 
So it was kind of a miserable experience. And um, when I saw that Nathan was going to be in Guys and Dolls, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work because if he gets, you know, if he gets the choice, I'm not sure he would, because of that experience, you know, sometimes it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Not that it was at me, but, you know, it's just like, I, I just didn't know if he would say something to Jerry Zach that would change his mind. So, and Jerry asked me about that experience, and I was very honest and said it was not the happiest. But I said, if you're asking me if you think Nathan Lane and I would be good together, um, I think it'd be, you know, if it's the right piece. We're very old, kind of old school vaudeville, and I think we'd be very good together if given the right situation. And anyways, he ended up casting me, and so Nathan and I, and the first thing Nathan did was send me flowers and say, here's to kick, oh, Bad Habits was the name of the play. I just thought of it. Um, here's to kicking Bad Habits in 91 and a long engagement in 92. And so that set us off on a really good path, and from then on, I mean, because I knew Guys and Dolls backwards and forwards because I'd done the role a couple of times. And so, you know, in terms of, I, I think I deferred to kind of him and Kate Milligan and Bad Habits because I thought, oh, it's a play and it's this and, you know, I'll just kind of hang back. And But for Guys and Dolls, I was like, move over. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, was that, it was that kind of thing. So, and I think he really liked that. So we, we got on. And after the first preview, he turned to me and he goes, you are absolutely magical as well. And I said, thank oh. you. And we just got on after that really well. And I'd be curious to know what it was like to have that uh, replacement with Carolyn Magnini and Josie de Guzman during previews. And... Well, you know, jo Josie and I known each other from uh, Nick and Nora. Oh. She had actually gotten um, let go in the role in Nick and Nora, and we played lovers in Nick and Nora. Oh. And um, so we were, we were good friends after that experience. And so when she got the understudy, I was so excited for her because she absolutely was a scapegoat in Nick and Nora. I think Arthur Lawrence just needed something to, you know, <laughs> let off steam. At, sometimes that's the way directors, you know, let off steam is to fire somebody. And so she got hired, and then I loved Carol Manini, you know. And it was hard because, you know, you have a relationship, and you're deep into rehearsal, and you're starting to run previews and then somebody says this is not working and they let that person go but because Josie and I were such good friends you know I mean I had both feelings I was like sad for Carol Manini and and but then I had to change lanes and and go with what they said and because Josie and I had been had a relationship because of Nick and Nora I think it was easier to assimilate yeah and You've mentioned him a little bit before, but what was your sort of relationship like with Jerry Zaks as a director, and what is he like as a director? It was good. You know, I, I respected him a lot, and I really wanted to please him. His um, Sometimes his articulation of every millisecond in the in the line, you know, um, is so, it, it really gets into the minutiae. And I'm a person that, like, I don't know, I, I find things organically, and um, I don't think about the actual rhythm of it. It just sort of comes to me. And he would have very specific notes that I'd want to do for him. But it would take me like three times to sort of get it 
started into my system and, and get it to where it was natural. So, you know, when we were getting previews and I knew critics were coming and everything, I finally spoke up and just said, you know, I think I can't have any more notes now. I've just got to run with it and I'm going to get it out of the park for you, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think he wasn't used to anybody saying that. So, But he, to his credit, I mean, he, he did leave us alone. He just said no more notes, which I know was a big deal for him because he always has notes. And I always wanted to know what he thought, but in that moment, I just couldn't think anymore, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to feel free, like I had missed something or checked, not checked the box. And so after a while, you know, you got to give it a running start. But he would come into the show intermittently, and I'd say, hey, i got a couple things for you to look at, you know? So I, I really respected him, and he was such a leader, and, um, you know, you really felt like he was the adult on duty, and had the ball and you know i mean he changed the show a lot and we were in previews in new york you know so you're in this big fish bowl and um he could tell you know new york is we're already ahead of it so we, we cut part of the runyon land and, and we, we made several adjustments that re he did which really changed the pace and the form of what we were doing and so that we were ahead of the audience he was very smart he's a very smart man yeah and did you always know that Guys and Dolls would be the great success it was, or when did you sort of realize that? Uh, I think the first preview, I knew we had something. And then as we worked through the previews, I could tell people really started to really like it, and all the changes were going in the right direction. Um, did I know that Nathan and I would be on the cover of the New York Times when it opened? No. I had no idea. And, I mean, I thought... I thought it would be successful, but it, it was really, it was a wow at the time. Around the time of uh, Guys and Dolls, you did a lot of work at Encores, including Fiorello and DuBerry was a lady. And so what do you like about the Encores process? And... Well, I think in the, uh, in the very beginning, it was a way to, I mean, I, I don't know what it kind of evolved into. Sorry, my husband's practicing trumpet. Um, but in the beginning, it was a way for to get old shows known, you know, that hadn't been done in a long time. And, um, I mean, like, I'd never seen Fiorello. I'd never seen DuBerry with Lady, you know. And now, I think it's, it has a different profile, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think, um, you know, they do more newer shows now. Yeah. So, um I, I kind of like that aspect of it, and I also like the process because um, we were holding books, and we were—it was sort of, you know, like a staged reading. And then it then it got to be like Summerstock, where they were trying to really stage the shows, and you know, uh, put like a lot of, of polish into a very short time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, but I, for me, I really like the process. I like seeing, you know, um, actors in process sort of working their magic. And that's, that's why I really wanted to do it. I mean, I was in the first one because Bobby, uh, Walter Bobby had directed it. Jerry Zach and Fiorello. And, um, you know, and it was a lot of fun. But, oh. um, 
I don't know. It's turned into something different. And I'm not saying that's bad. It's just I preferred what it what it originally set out to do. Yeah. And was there or is there any undiscovered show you'd want to do there? Not that I can think of, Charles, but I'm sure, you know, um, one time, I mean, but this isn't a, this isn't a musical, you know, I'm thinking, um, Fallen Angels was something I wanted to look at, um, but that's not, that's not a musical, that's a play, you know. Um, I, I like new works. I just did a workshop with uh, Edie Vitale and Carmen Cusack, oh. and it's called 38 Minutes, and uh, that was really fun, you know, because it's just, it's fun to still develop things and use your brain and bring a lot to the table, and I love bringing a lot to the table, you know. So um, I'm always open to things that are from the past, but also from the future. You know, and I think it just depends on the project. Yeah. And I'd love to ask about the play you did after Guys and Dolls, which was less successful, which was called What's Wrong With This Picture? And so how did this sort of begin for you? Were you always auditioning for plays as well? or? Well, um, you know, I think I was, I was with a, an agent at that time, Peter Strain, and I think he and I were always looking at building my career. And they actually asked me to do Funny Girl after um, Guys and Dolls. But I felt like it was another revival. Um, Barbara Streisand was still, you know, extremely uh, present and uh, in the in the limelight. I don't know. That, that didn't seem like a perfect... Um, Part for me, and so I turned that down. And then this play came up, and Donald Margulies is a wonderful playwright, and Joe Montello was just starting to direct. And um, I don't know; it felt like a, a, you know, an interesting way to go to navigate something different, totally different from Guys and Dolls. And I'm always have been about the work, so it seemed like a good idea, but. It didn't quite work out that way. Oh. And what was it like to work with Jerry Stiller, who was a great comedian, who of course we just lost? Oh, what a mensch. I loved him. He was just a ray of sunlight. And really, you know, I don't know, I gleamed a lot of uh, wonderful aspects from him because he didn't take the business too seriously, but he took the work seriously, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so, what do you think it was about that play that made it less successful in the end? Um, I don't know. The play itself uh, was lacking. You know, it was about a, a mother who had died and came back. I don't know. The premise was just sort of <clears throat> wriggly. And at the end of the day, we were in town again. We weren't working out of town, which... At that time, you know, it used to be people take it, you go to Boston or, you, you know, you go out on tour and come in and work on something. It just felt like being in a fishbowl. And um, I just I just remember it not, not feeling that great and, you know, just trying to get through it the best way I could and, and be the best that I could be. But I also got pregnant. Oh. 
and okay. so I was kind of dealing with all of that morning sickness and my first trimester and <laughs> so uh, th- honestly that's what I remember superseding anything so I was I was sad but I was just like okay well it's not gonna work out you know it, you know at least I'm gonna be a mother that's exciting you know so I don't know that's when real life really helps you know it's like you Again, like Jerry Stiller said, you know, you take you take the work seriously, you don't take the business seriously. Yeah. And what has it been like to balance sort of having a kid and being an actress for after that? Well, um, it's definitely challenging, but it's a good challenge. I yeah. think it, I think I really, um, I don't know, I really sort of became discerning in a different way because of my child. And, I mean, Larry and I have always been in the business. We're two artists. But our child came first. And, you know, we kept thinking, how can we work our lives um, with making Henry the most, you know, the, the happiest and putting him first. But we're still who we are. We're artists. We're not um, plumbers or, you know, um go to a nine-to-five job. We, we are who we are. So we just tried to make the best decisions around that. And sometimes it made us make different decisions. I think, I mean, we left New York to move to California to do more, um, for me, more film and TV so I could be at home more and not have a full-time nanny. And, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like it kind of opened up the world in a completely different way because we were trying to make choices for Henry that seemed better. He, he really didn't want two parents doing five shows on a weekend and him spending Saturdays with good friends and, you know, a nanny. And um, so when he was about six, we, you know, sold our house and moved to California. Oh. And, th- and that really allowed us to be together more, you know. Yeah. And so I'd love to ask about a show you did after that, which you came into as a replacement, which was The King and I. And so what was, how much sort of direction did you get in that show coming in as a replacement? And I got a lot of direction and I asked for it. Chris Renshaw, um, in fact, that was the only way I would do it is I said, you know, I really want to be like hands-on directed. I said, that's a very different role for me. And, um, and God bless him. He, he was totally there. And uh, that was a great experience. It was great working with Lou Diamond Phillips and coming into something that I didn't know if I could do or not, you know. And those, I think sometimes when you're scared, you're in the place, you're in the right place. Yeah. And with a co-star like Lou Diamond Phillips or just in general, how do you sort of approach finding the romantic chemistry on stage? Um. I don't know if you can find it. I think it's there or it isn't. And um, certainly the situation of that piece opens itself up for the possibility because two people couldn't be further from, um, you know, opposite uh, places in their life. And, and that's what's fun is seeing two people kind of come together and work together and navigate together. And I had the chance to do it with him and Kevin Gray and wonderful man, I cannot remember his name, uh, on the road. He was, he was the king. Because at one point, Haley Mills got sick and they sent me out from the Broadway company to fill in for her for a couple of different weeks. 
on the road. And um, he and I had great chemistry, too. So I, I don't know. Um, I certainly always look to have chemistry with, um, you know, other actors. And I've been really lucky. I've had some incredible, incredible leading men. I mean, the list is very interesting, you know. Um, uh, but I, I think just allowing um, yourself to connect with different people. And, I mean, sometimes the chemistry doesn't happen, but I have to say it's rare um, yeah. for me because I, I really try to reach out beyond, and, and I found my partners very willing and sometimes it's in the box, what I call in the box. We're not maybe great friends outside the box, yeah. but in the box, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. And so this wouldn't apply to uh, The King and I, but I'd be curious to know, how do you feel as an actor about reviews? And do you read them or how much do you pay attention to them? Oh, uh, God, Charles, I really try not to. I oh. call them report cards. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you just get tired of them. I always say, I do the best I can. <laughs> People don't like it. I don't know what to say. Um, you know, but inevitably somebody will mention something or somebody will, you know, text you something or somebody will call and quote you something, you know. So after a while, it's like, oh, God, let me just, you know, freaking yeah. read it. <laughs> and so um, around this time was when you did the first uh, production or reading that you did of Bells Are Ringing. And so was the intent with that to always come to Broadway? or? Yeah. Tina uh, and I did a workshop, but not a workshop, stage reading of it at the Kennedy Center, and that was really fun. And um, I had done a couple of uh, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, those roasts at the, oh, what's that club? Um I mm, can't think of it. It's like a comedy club or it's a place where comedians are. I don't know if you could remember it. Um, it's right there in town. And I've done a couple of roads, you know, um, not roads, but, you know, where they highlight them and, and honor them. And I kept doing stuff of, for Comden and Green. And I think there was even a night at the, at the um, Carnegie Hall where I did something. And so it just kind of all came together, and then the Dodgers were going to produce it. And then it went on and on and on, and they didn't get it up. So then I did uh, Little Me instead, and it sort of put the whole production off uh, even further. So I think Betty Comden really wanted to get on with it. So she started looking for somebody else. And then in the end, I kept waiting, you know, to see what the verdict was, and Tina called me, and she said, well, Betty wants you to come back in, and I said, okay, so I, I have to audition again, even though I've, you know, done this, uh, you know, reading and stuff, and she said, yeah, they want you to come in, and, and everything, and I said, well, it tipped, and Tina goes, go with love, you know, and so um, I went in, and uh, Mitchell Maxwell was the producer at that time. And he just said, I don't know what we've been spending six months looking for. This is our Ella, you know. And so we went on with the production. And, um, you know, it was complex. And Mitchell Maxwell was complex. <laughs> he, he, I don't know. I've never had a producer like him. Oh. And uh, all I can say is run, don't walk. Um, <laughs> but um, I 
enjoyed working with Tina so much, and I was just sad it wasn't more successful and ran longer. Yeah. And what was your collaboration with Tina Landau like? Because I know she's a very visionary director. And oh, I, I absolutely love her. She's one of the most fun, positive directors, and just it's like it's like honestly, it's like playing. It's like why I got into theater. Yeah. And another show you did that. I guess it must have been a lot like playing because of all the great comedy and it was Little Me, which you were mentioning, which is a cast recording I love a lot. And what was it like to work with uh, Martin Short on that? You were mentioning your long list of co-stars. Well, he was, he was lovely. You know, I mean, he's a stand-up comic and that's a very different sort of beast, even though, I mean, I, t I would tell him often, you know, I think you're really an incredible actor. But I think he, he never really... Um, um, it was hard for him to take the compliment, and uh, he just said, you know, my fans really look for me to kind of be a certain thing, and, and I said, well, okay, I said, I think you underestimate your fans, but I said, I think you're a very wonderful actor, and uh, uh, we, you know, we got on, and Little Me is, is complex because it says it's about Little Me, but it's really about Little He. I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, it's really about the man, and yet it's under the auspices of being about Bill's life. So it was an interesting project, and it was an interesting challenge playing both old and young Bill, you know, because uh, usually two women play that evening so that yeah. was challenging but i'll tell you i'm very very proud of the cd i mean i think you can tell like i kind of go from 15 to 56 and um i thought the numbers came off well and the the sound and the theatricality of it so i was really pleased with that and so um do you think that when you're doing a show, a comic show like this from the 50s or something like that, that do you think that you need to update it in a certain way? Or that I don't know. Sometimes um, I think the shows depend on what's in the other, you know, season. Um, sometimes the mix and how it goes over. I mean, even, even like when Disaster, which I love that show so much, um, was in the same season with Hamilton, you know, it just obliterated almost everything that was there. So sometimes I think that's a combination um, that matters and ha has a certain influence. Um, sometimes people can take dated things and we know it's dated and we take it as that. Sometimes it needs a twist. I mean, certainly Guys and Dolls was tweaked with because people were kind of ahead of it. Yeah. And so Jerry Zach made, you know, um, certain uh, tweaks for for that. And, I mean, he cut part of Runyon Land, so we were into the story. Um, because the audience was savvy and ready for that, you know. I think it depends on the show and depends on the season, is what I would say. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you about another sort of theater legend you worked with, which was Jerry Herman on his show Miss Spectacular. Yes. Um, well, it, I mean, it was an album. It wasn't really a show. Um, and uh, I loved uh, Where in the World is My Friend. 
I absolutely love, uh, you know, recording that, and I could tell, um, you know, it went over well, and, and I really got his sense of humor, and, and this is something I tell my students, you know, <laughs> people always think, oh, comedy, 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 you know, well, comedy's tragedy, so if you... If you really look at the dilemma of the song, which in, in this case, you know, she, she could never find somebody who wasn't old, who wasn't gay, who wasn't, you know, all these things. Um, I just find that if I play the dilemma honestly, the comedy comes naturally, if that makes sense. Yes. And, um, and in this case, that's exactly what I did. I mean, I really looked at her dilemma. She was trying to find the right person, and everywhere she looked, she thought she had found it. And, and in, you know, in her case, each, each one kind of fell through. Um, so he had, you know, structured a beautifully crafted dilemma. And sometimes that's the best, you know, solution for comedy. And so um, you did uh, two plays right after this, and was that a conscious choice to start doing more plays, or did it just sort of happen that way? Well, um, Terrence McNally had seen me in Carousel. It, Carousel was supposed to come in at that time. It was at the Kennedy Center with Tom Wilpat. Um, this was in, I don't know, 1986, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, I might be off a year or two, but um, he, Terrence McNally had seen me as Carrie Pipperidge in Carousel. And he came backstage and he said, you know, you're really an actress. And I went, excuse me? He, he said, no, no, I mean, I know you do a lot of musicals and a lot of musical comedy. And he said, but I really, I just, I think your acting is just, you know, this, I just would love to work with you as an actress. And I was like, oh, my God, well, thank you. So he made a concerted effort to sort of align me with uh, Manhattan Theater Club. And um, that's when I started sort of thinking about plays and working as a straight actress and, and all of that was really due to Terrence. And, I mean, he always got me in with projects. And he wrote Man of No Importance. I believe he wrote it for me. But, but he's the one who got me sort of in there and thinking about doing plays and doing straight plays, honestly. So I credit Terrence with that. Oh, yes. And a straight play you did with a lot of other sort of musical theater actors was Noises Off with Patti LuPone and Peter Gallagher. And what was that like to work with those great? Yeah, that's tricky. Uh, I kind of take the fifth on that. Oh. Um, Peter and I had done Guys and Dolls together, so, I mean, we, we got on fine. Uh, I think it was tricky, too, because um, it was right when 9-11 happened in the middle. We oh. were in rehearsals for that. Um, I just, you know, Patty's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, how, do you, how do, do you sort of work out the timing for a farce like that, is that similar to what you do for a musical, or is it different? Or... You know, um, it is sort of musical-like uh, in, in terms of timing. I mean, the, the only thing you're missing is the musical numbers, but I think you rehearse it um, in, I mean, it, it has a certain rhythm to it. 
And um, that's a fascinating piece, too, because it's on stage, off stage, on stage. And you're kind of doing similar things from different aspects. Um, it was a fun show to do and exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and has there been any role you've done that's been especially hard to sort of find as an actor? Um, well, I, I would say that character in Bad Habits was... Oh. Uh, tricky. Um, I actually hired a, an acting coach to come help me. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that, that that probably is the one that stands out. Just because the piece was tricky, um, you know, Paul Benedict was the director. He didn't really give us a lot, so I had to seek help elsewhere. Um, but I, I usually really enjoy the, I call it excavation, you know, of finding who this person is and um, uncovering sometimes more than creating, just uncovering who they are. Um, I, I so love that process. And I really always try to bring a lot to the table, but I love being directed. And I like seeing the way somebody else sees it and, and collaborating, you know. And working as a team, and working as a team with cats, you know, yeah. I am a, I'm a really good team player. So it's hard for me sometimes when people are not a team player and how to survive that experience, you know, even though they aren't. And it's very few, but every once in a while you hit that, you know, yeah. sort of specific experience where it's like, oh Lord, this is going to be tough, you know. <laughs> but. Um, but I go into each one thinking, you know, okay, we're going to have fun, we're going to collaborate, we're going to be a team, and, you know, because I really want it to be a great experience, especially the older I get. It's like, life's too short. Yeah. And when you came back to uh, Broadway with the Catered Affair, how did you find, or did you find that the industry had sort of changed, or, or Broadway had changed? Um, it has, but, you know... And it's really changed now. I mean, I, I I see the shows very, very differently. But, and I've said this before, you know, we need more than Lincoln Center to find a place for those sort of what I call chamber pieces, you know, that are worth Broadway um, royalty, but um, it may not be the corporate sort of, um, you know, branding of the way the musicals have gone. Yeah. And I think it would be great if somebody could create that space for those for those pieces. And do you think that, even sort of aside from that part of it, do you think that what audiences want to see has changed? Um, well, that's kind of a trick question, because audiences want to see what we put out there. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, it's like which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, yeah. I think what we put out there is sometimes a reflection of the culture we're in and what we're learning and what we're trying to question and um, or fix or um, and sometimes I think you know, if if we put it out there, they will come. You know, what's that, what's that movie? If you build it, they will come. 
you know? So I think it's got to be a push-pull. I think sometimes, yeah, sometimes I look at things and I thought, who would who would come to this? You know, who would buy these tickets? And if it's something that isn't timely or the way we look at something, I'm, you know, now might not be the time for that piece. But I also think people that create shows, it's got to come from their point of view, and they have a reason and an expression for putting it out there. And if it's so, you know, unique to them and it's their story, it's usually universal to all of us in some in some place, you know, even though it's another culture or another... Because, I mean, there, there are just so many things we usually have in common, more than people realize. So if it's a specific story um, and it's close to them and they have to express it, a lot of times that's where you, you see, um, you know, how it relates to other people. So it's twofold, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. It does. And I'd love to ask about um, a catered affair, about one of another one of the great directors who you worked with, John Doyle. Yeah, um, loved him. He really, he took me places, and again, in kind of the straight world that I had never been, the, the straight acting world, not the straight world, you know, <laughs> not, not sexuality, but um, straight acting, and um, yeah, I just I had such a love for him and a trust for him, and I loved the way he worked, and he was just so positive, and um, that, that was an incredible experience. Oh. And so I'd love to ask about uh, The Little Mermaid, which I believe was a unique challenge. You did it on roller skates, is that right? Or I didn't roller skate. Oh. They did. Yeah. Um, the the um, Earthlet, you know, has that, con <laughs> that wild uh, costume that was like tentacles and very heavy. And uh, then it switches to like this cake-like thing. It was an interesting costume. It was, <laughs> it was extremely extremely heavy oh. and uh, in fact one night I had a sub dresser and she forgot to turn the crank all the way and the whole apparatus fell off the back end so it was funny um, and the eels helped me out and kind of you know hurled it into the wings and uh, I used my fingernails to sort of crawl up my body and hit the high notes and walk over to um, Ariel and say not just any ink darling and I put my fingernail up and I went, use mine. And so she signed the contract with my fingernail instead of my sort of cape. So it was, <laughs> I love when things like that happen. And the dresser came up to me, she goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'll never do that again. You know, and I just looked there and I go, honey, that was hilarious. I said, but never let it happen again. <laughs> it was funny. And so what was the experience like of doing a show that's aimed mostly at sort of younger audiences? And... Oh, I loved it. I loved it. You know, and I could tell I was, you know, terrifying children. And I have to say I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, I've always been like, you know, the best babysitter and camp counselor and on RA in college and everything. But it's fun to be wicked. I have to say it's just, as I say, it's delicious. Yeah. And how do you bring sort of your own depth as an actress to a character like that that's a little more cartoony and... Well, um, you know, I kind of 
went off to the original film. And um, I think of a delightful aunt, you know, and usually I always say evil people, probably the most interesting people in the room. And what I tried to bring to Ursula was how you could be, you know, a delightful aunt and interesting and complex and then, you know, turn evil, you know, because <laughs> you've got to get her in the room to be able to steal the, the voice and, you know, um, I don't know. I, I just, I always think when somebody hands me that kind of character, I go, okay, what's the push pull of this? Like with Hannigan, you know, she was always looking for a man and yet she was around all these kids and being a mother and, you know, and she didn't want to be in that position. So that's kind of the push pull. Anytime a man would come in, she was like, oh, hello, you know, and then the, the girls would come around and she'd go, listen, little shit, you know, she didn't say that, but that's what she was thinking, you know. And so it was just so fun, that, that push pull of it. So with Ursula, you know, I think people think of it as just pure evil, but I think she had a lot more colors than that. So it was fun to try to find that. I always say you can't play that all night long. It'll just flatline, you know? Yeah. So it was it was fun finding all the different colors. That's what I love doing. And what was it like also to be working on a show that involved so much sort of technology and things like that? I enjoy that you know I'm always open to the new things and it's fun to be around young people and you know at a certain point you know when you're coming along you think oh I'm the youngest person and, and Charles I think you'll even experience this you know you'll think oh I'm the youngest person in the room you know and one day like when I was doing Billy Elliot on the road we were in the you know women's bathroom and one of the gals who was heading up, you know, the choreography for the young girls and everything. And she came out and she goes, well, come on, mama, let's go. You know? And I was like, mama, you know? And I thought, huh, mama. Okay. I, I'm good with that. Okay. Mama, you know? And it just looked like a turning point. And I thought, wow, I'm, yeah, I'm really getting to be one of those broads, you know? And now, you know, as it's gone along, it's like, you know, I can tell people look to me for that. It's it's sort of like being Mother Nature or something. I don't know. It's um, and I don't know. I I I like experiencing that. And it's not like I want to be younger than I am. I just want to go on the ride, and this is where I'm at. And you know, I yeah, I do have the experience, but I'm also open to learning from other people. I mean, that's why I like still creating and. Being around a group of people, it's fun to be on a TV show, you know, and go into the trailer and learn about the, you know, the newest mascara or the, 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 the most hip, you know, um, trend or, you know, hearing them talk and their impressions. And I, I love all that, you know. So I think you have to, it's good when you mix it up and you have yeah. an old school thing to you, but you're open. And so you mentioned uh, Annie as one of the next things you did. And with that role of Miss Hannigan, how did you find this balance sort of between being mean but not too mean? Or do you think there was such a thing with that? Oh, no. I think, you know, again, I think it's the contrast that's interesting. And I think as long as you're rooted in why she is like she is, you know, it was the depression. Um, she didn't. She didn't have a man, 
she was poor. Um, you know, uh, you, you see the, you know, you understand the frustration. So even though somebody could be like that, you kind of understand how they yeah. are like they are, and they can be likable through that. And that's the wonderful gift. I mean, I kind of patterned mine, I mean, in my mind, Dorothy Loudon is like the best Hannigan ever, oh. you know? And she was just sort of insane <laughs> and likable in her insanity. And, um, you know, in her wackiness and her quirkiness, you know? So I just kind of took my lead from that and put my own stamp on it. And then um, I'd be curious to know how a disaster began for you, your last Broadway show till now. Uh, a phone call from Mr. Seth Radetzky. Actually, it wasn't even a phone call, it was a text. Hey, lady, which is what he called me, uh, would you like to do my show? And I said, oh, disaster? So the one you've been doing? You said, yeah. And I go, am I right for that part? He goes, yes. And I went, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> That's how it started. Because, you know, Seth and I did group therapy for almost like, I want to say eight to ten years. He doesn't remember how many years, but it was a lot. And um, there's a trust and a bond when you go through something like that. So, um, I don't know. I just knew he'd know. Yeah. And what was it like to collaborate with him and also a much younger director, Jack Plotnick, who was... Oh, well, I found him brilliant. Just brilliant. And the fascinating thing about that show was he... People would pitch ideas because there were so many sort of, you know, veterans in the cast and, you know, well-earned stripes that when, you know, you'd raise your hand to pitch something, he would take all the pitches and he'd go, okay, let's try that. Um, hold on that, but that's a good thought. Um, okay, could we run it this, let's run it the way it is, and then maybe we'll look at it. You know, he was just, he was so great. And that, that was a completely delightful experience from beginning to end. One of the most fun times I've ever had on stage. And I mean, and I love guys and dolls, but in terms of just, um, coming to the table and, and, you know, thinking of wacky ideas and, I mean, Jen Samar and, you know, just oh. working with her and Kevin Chamberlain, Roger Bard. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Carrie Butler, you know, just so many. I mean, the cast was just superb, superb. And so, such mentions. I never was in my dressing room because I was always in the wings watching somebody else work. Oh, wow. And so I'd love to sort of close by asking you about uh, the musical you were just mentioning, 38 Minutes, that you were working on. And what is that show like or about? Or? Um, well, it's when the missile almost hit Hawaii. I think 2018, I want to say, something like that. And uh, it's about the family who goes to Hawaii for vacation. And, you know, when, when things like that happen, usually... Um, you know, the truth comes out. <laughs> People feel like they're going to die and they, they might as well get it off their chest. So it's a complex family, as most always families are. And I play, in this I play Carmen Cusack's uh, um, mother, Grandma Doug, 
from, uh, I think it's Texas, because that's where Edie's from. And um, it's sort of patterned after her mother. And um, and it's fun, you know, I said to Carmen, last time I was with you on stage, I did First Wives Club, and I played your roommate in college. And I said, now I'm your mother. I said, but whatever. Because um, <laughs> it's all about the role, isn't it? But I love her. I think she's wildly gifted. Oh, that Carmen Cusack. Oh, yes, she's amazing. And the, um, the very last question I'd love to ask is, with such a great career in the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Um, get good training. Um, follow your own instincts. Hone them and follow them. And... Don't be afraid to work extremely hard and map out your career yourself. There's always more we can do for ourselves than we think we can. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to, to talk to you. And to oh, meet you. my God, it's my pleasure. And you Listeners, have- thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by veteran actress Candy Buckley. Candy Buckley is currently appearing in Becky Nurse of Salem, one of the most buzzed-about plays of the season at Lincoln Center Theatre, and her Broadway credits include Cabaret, Ring Round the Moon, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Scandalous. She has also performed around the country in The Petrified Prince, Wise Guys with Nathan Lane, Whistle Down the Wind, Mimi Leduc, The Taming of the Shrew, and more. You won't want to miss this interview, so make sure to tune back in for it, and thanks for listening.